As we prepare to look together to the truth of God's Word that's summarized in Lord's Day 29, I'd like to read with you from Psalm 34, which really speaks of what we just sang. To live apart from God is death. It's good His face to seek. My refuge is the living God. His praise I long to speak. That's really the the message of Psalm 34 encapsulated. Listen to the words of David that we find in Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name forever. Together. I sought the Lord and He heard me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to Him and were radiant and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried out and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger. But those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He guards all of his bones. Not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous shall be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants. And none of those who trust in Him shall be condemned. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Now Lord's Day 29 poses two questions to us. Speaking of the Lord's Supper, which we've been introduced to in Lord's Day 28, it asks us, first of all, are the bread and the wine changed into the real body and blood of Christ? And the answer is no. Just as the water of baptism is not changed into Christ's blood and does not itself wash away sins, but is simply God's sign and assurance, so too the bread of the Lord's Supper is not changed into the actual body of Christ, even though it is called the body of Christ, in keeping with the nature and language of sacraments. Why then does Christ call the bread His body and the cup His blood or the new covenant in His blood? Paul uses the words a participation in Christ's body and blood. Christ had good reason for these words. He wants to teach us that as bread and wine nourish our temporal life, so too His crucified body and poured out blood truly nourish our souls for eternal life. But more important, he wants to assure us by this visible sign and pledge that we, through the Holy Spirit's work, share in the true body and blood, in his true body and blood, as surely as our mouths receive these holy signs in his remembrance. And that all of his suffering and obedience are as definitely ours as if we personally 
had suffered and paid for our sins. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ. Not sure if any of you have noticed. But every eight weeks or so we do something that would have been considered an abomination. To our forefathers about oh 500 years ago. What we do is we pass the bread and the wine of the Lord's Supper through the pews of the church. That doesn't seem like a big deal to most of you. It's the way you've done it all your lives. There are a few of you who, who may remember coming forward to partake around a, a table or recall passing a common cup of wine. But for most of you, that's all you've ever done is receive the bread and the wine as it's passed through the pews that we might all partake together. We don't think it's a big deal. It's bread and it's wine. And we pass it as we would pass bread and wine at home. And of course, we know that there's always a risk that some might spill. But if it does, well, you know, it's bread, it's wine, we'll clean it up. But to the church of our forefathers in the Middle Ages... And to the Catholic Church today, that attitude is unthinkable. You see, since at least the year 1215, the Roman Catholic doctrine held that the bread of the Lord's Supper becomes, truly and substantially becomes, the same body of Christ that was born of Mary. And likewise, the wine becomes, truly and substantially becomes, the blood of our Lord. As soon as the priest utters the words of consecration, this is my body and this is my blood of the new covenant, they believe a change takes place. And the bread remains only in appearance. The substance, they say, the reality is flesh. And likewise, the wine has disappeared in all but smell and taste. And the substance is the blood of Christ to be worshipped and adored before being offered on an altar before God. And if that's the case, that the bread and the wine are no longer, that they have been transformed into flesh and blood, then to pass them as though they were common food, well, that's almost blasphemous. You need to take great care in how you treat those elements if you're actually passing the flesh and the blood of Christ. You don't chance that a careless child or a distracted adult might drop the elements and the Savior whom they contain. You can see perhaps why for them our practice is unthinkable. But not to us. Not to us. We don't hesitate to pass the bread and the wine because we know them to be bread and wine. We believe Christ is present in the Lord's Supper, but we don't believe that the bread and the wine are changed. And yet, even as we confess this, we can hear the echo of the voices of our forefathers from 600 years ago asking, and our Catholic neighbors inquiring today, then what did Jesus mean when he said, this is my body, this is my blood of the new covenant? If words have meaning, then is speaks of the condition, the reality. So how then can you say that is isn't? And it's to answer that question that Lord's Day 29 was written. 
Because it is important that we know how to answer that question. Unless we're able to answer that question, we cannot rightly, well, we can't dispel their concerns. But even more importantly, we can't know the true value of the sacrament that stands before us. So how do we answer this objection about Jesus' words? Well, this summary of the teaching of Scripture... It shows us that in instituting the Lord's Supper, Christ speaks the language of assurance. And that's what we need to understand when we're partaking of the Lord's Supper. That Christ speaks the language here of assurance. But before we go any further into that, I need to to pause and speak to our young people a minute. I was young once, so I know, I have a guess at least, what some of you are thinking. We don't believe that the bread and the wine are changed into flesh and blood. We don't even have many friends that are Roman Catholic. So why do we waste time talking about it? Why do we even worry about it? Well, it matters. And it must matter to us. Because the doctrine that was embraced, that which was confessed and is confessed today in the Catholic Church, was confessed by our forefathers, and it was a serious error. And if we forget the errors of the past and how they were answered, not just by wise men, but by the truth of God's Word, if we forget that, then we and our children become ripe for embracing the same errors or worse in the future. And this particular error had many tragic effects. Because of this view, folks began to worship the bread and the wine as though they were Christ. And because it was the priest who uttered those sacred words that allegedly transformed the substance of the bread into flesh, the substance of the wine into blood, the priest began to be regarded as being immensely powerful, powerful enough to call forth Christ from his heavenly throne. And so an overemphasis on the priesthood arose. With that view of the sacrament, it's no surprise that it led in many people to an embrace of superstition. What need have you for devotion before God when you can obtain God's favor by the simple act of eating and drinking? What need do you have to pray to a God who is unseen when you can wait until you're standing before the bread and the wine which have become flesh and blood and you can worship and adore Him there in the flesh. And of course, all of this superstition and all of these errors gave great opportunity to Satan because it was clear to anyone with eyes and taste buds that what the church was consuming was bread and wine. But the church insisted it was something radically different, that it was human flesh, human blood. And so in answer, the skeptics mocked and they made light of the faith. And those who were of weak faith began to doubt and perhaps be led astray. While at the same time, those who should have been worried, who should have been concerned about their standing before God, were given a false assurance simply because they had eaten and drank. Many were the rotten fruits that fell from the tree of this error. So our catechism speaks clearly to give us the truth that counters the error. The bread is not transformed into flesh, it says, even though it's called the body of Christ. Physically, Jesus' body is in heaven. It's important we recognize that. Acts 1 tells us that the disciples watched as Jesus physically rose into heaven until his body was hidden by the clouds. And the angels 
spoke to them at that time. And they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So he is physically in heaven even now. But if he could physically be in two places at once, if he could be in heaven right now, but also on a table in front of us in our presence, well, then his human nature would be pretty different than ours, wouldn't it? Because we, in our human nature, can be in one place at one time only. But Jesus, well, his human nature would be different, right? His flesh could be in multiple places at one time. And that would mean that we don't truly have our flesh and blood in heaven, that we don't truly have a mediator who is one of us in every way. The Bible shows us that physically the body of our Lord is and remains in heaven. And as the angels said, this same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go. So he will not come back in a different form. He will not come back numerous times. He will not come back seemingly magically. No, he will come back once at the end of the age and he will do so in like manner as they saw him go, which is to say he will descend from heaven physically in human form. And that means that the bread that we break is, in fact, bread. There's nothing particularly special about the bread. It's the same kind of bread you could eat at Sunday dinner at home. And the wine of which we partake, it's, it's wine. It's the fruit of grapes that have been squeezed and fermented and carefully bottled. The elders incur no guilt if they take the leftover and they... Pour it down the drain. Because while Jesus is present at the Lord's Supper, He's not present in the elements. He's present spiritually. First of all, because He is true God. He is infinite. His divinity cannot be limited the way His humanity can be. And even more so, He's present in the person of the Holy Spirit. In the hearts of those who have faith. Jesus promised everyone who has faith that He will never leave us or forsake us. And so when we partake of Him by faith, we do so through the power and the operation of the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus could say in John 6 that one day He would ascend to heaven and yet still He would feed His people. How could that be so? If He's in heaven, how can He feed, of his, feed his people of Himself? Well, He explained in John 6 verse 63, the Spirit gives life, the flesh Profits nothing. It is by the Spirit that He feeds us, not by an eating of that which is merely physical. Well, that's all well and good, but, but there's a problem. If Jesus isn't physically present in the sacrament, then why did He say, as we read in Matthew 26, Take, eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. If the bread and the wine weren't truly transformed, why speak as though they were? Well, in answer, our forefathers spoke of the nature and language of sacraments. Language that is sacramental speaks of the sign as though it was that which it signifies. Example. 
In Genesis 17, God gave the sacrament, the Old Testament sacrament of circumcision. And he spoke of that circumcision as my covenant in your flesh. Now that circumcision, that physical act, didn't somehow become the covenant, but it represented the covenant so truly, so closely, that he could speak of the sign as the thing which it signified. That's sacramental language. Likewise, in several instances, we hear God speak about circumcising the hearts of his people. He says that that you need to circumcise your hearts or I will circumcise your hearts. It didn't mean that he was going to, to perform a surgical procedure on their heart. But he was speaking of the act as the thing that it signifies. Sacramental language is sensory language. It's a manner of speaking about God's promises in a form that we can relate to. Kind of like a... A picture drawn with words. Psalm 34 does that. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Clearly, that's not a call for us to physically consume God or something of God. It's a call for us to experience the Lord, to receive what He has offered. Blessed is the man who trusts in Him. The the Hebrew there for the word trusts literally means to take refuge in. That's why a lot of Bible translations use that. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Well, how do we take refuge in someone or something? You take refuge in that which will protect you, right? If you take refuge in your house during a storm, you go into the house. If you take refuge in a cave when you're lost out in the woods, you go into that cave and allow it to protect you. But God, He's calling us to trust Him in a way that that allows us to see that, to picture that, to really feel that. That sensory language, it's figurative, like a picture made of words. It's not intended to describe a physical reality. If it was, how could Jesus say in John 6:51 that He is the living bread? He was speaking figuratively, sacramentally. The language doesn't ex- uh, express a physical reality, but a spiritual one. And so He says... Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in Him. Taste of the Lord. Experience Him personally through your faith. Take refuge in the Lord, trusting in Him for your deliverance. Folks, we need to understand this basic truth about the Lord's Supper. When Jesus said, take, eat, this is my body. With those words, He was speaking not of a change in the food before us, but He was speaking sacramentally. Speaking words of assurance and comfort. Speaking of a spiritual reality rather than a physical one. And that's the second thing that this Lord's Day teaches us. By instituting the Lord's Supper, Christ was speaking to confirm the faith within us. Jesus said, take, eat, this is my body. And why did He say that? He wasn't wasn't saying something about the bread. That's where folks in the past made the mistake. They assumed he was conveying a message about some change in the bread which would allow us to reach out and take for ourselves that which we needed. But he wasn't saying something about the bread. He was saying something about himself. He was saying that he must be, as Lord's Day, or as Psalm 34 says, that he must be tasted. He must be experienced. He must be received. That he might nourish us and give us life. He was telling his disciples that they must partake of him. They must... Be joined, united to Him. And at the same time, He's saying something about the disciples themselves. He's saying that of themselves, 
They don't have that which they need to live. They need to be nourished. They need to be strengthened by something outside of themselves, by Him. And then He said, this is My blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Again, He's not saying something about the wine. He's saying something about the covenant. That it required an atonement greater than that accomplished by the blood of lambs and bulls. He was saying that the atonement required... Well, really, it required the sacrifice of a man, the perfect man, for the sins of men. And at the same time, he was saying, that sacrifice must be done for you. It must be my blood that is poured out. And you must receive the benefits as surely as you receive this wine. See, we need to change our perspective about the Lord's Supper. For too long, the church was asking, what does is mean? But they were focusing on the wrong thing. They were focusing on the bread and the wine, the elements. Asking what Jesus' words meant for the food before them. But he wasn't speaking to change the food. He was speaking to confirm the faith of the disciples. He spoke not about bread and wine, but about what the bread and the wine represent and about the people who partake of it. So then what is he teaching us in the Lord's Supper? Folks, he's teaching us that our faith in him is what we need. By setting the bread and the wine before you, he's saying you need to be fed. You need to be nourished. Because you can't enter eternal life on your own. Even if your sin was not sufficient to condemn you before God, which it is, even so, every one of you, every one of us lacks the ability to uphold the commands that God has given us. We saw that this morning looking at Deuteronomy 6. If the law shows us nothing else, it shows us that we can't do what we would need to do to be righteous in God's sight on our own. We're too weak, we're too sinful, we're too frail to do it. So in the supper, he reminds us, you must be fed by that which is outside of you. And I am the one to feed you. My body broken for your sins, that you might be forgiven. My blood poured forth, that you might be cleansed. That's what must save us. That's what must give us strength. That's what must feed us. It's the same message as we read in Psalm 34. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in Him. The Lord redeems the soul of His servants. And none of those who trust in Him shall be condemned. Folks, this is the reminder that we are insufficient. And therefore, we must rest in Christ. The Lord is near To those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him from them all. Folks, that's the message of self-insufficiency. A message that we need what we can't provide for ourselves, what people can't provide for us, but what Christ alone can give us. And we need to recognize that lesson every time we partake of the Lord's Supper. When you see the bread broken, remember, that's what Christ endured, that our sins might be forgiven. That's what I needed if I was to have true eternal life. When you see the wine poured from the container into the cup, remember what that shows us. 
That's the price that he paid so that I could be reconciled to God. That was the cost to cleanse me from the defilement of my sin and make me holy in the sight of our Lord. He gave the Lord's Supper to teach us those lessons. But more than that, he gave it to assure us of the truth of what he's done. As surely as we eat and drink by faith in him, that's how surely we can know that we are fed by Christ. That we are given that which nourishes us. That we are ushered in to communion with our God. This is the assurance of Psalm 34 made edible as it was, as it were. This poor man cried out and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. And Jesus says, you're calling on me in faith. It's just as effective as that hand that reaches out and takes hold of the bread. You see that hand reach out, take hold of the bread and bring it to your mouth. And you know that it's going to nourish that body, right? And just as surely your faith, when it reaches out and takes hold of Christ, it nourishes your soul unto eternal life. The angel of the Lord encamps around all, those, all around those who fear Him and delivers them. How real is that promise? Do you taste the sweetness of the wine? It's tang on your tongue? It's aftertaste on your lips. That's how real is the deliverance that Christ brings. That's how true is the cleansing that He offers. As real as that food and drink, that's how real is His deliverance. That's how concrete it is. There's a pretty solid rule in life. If you eat food, it will nourish you. You'll benefit from its nourishment. That's a fact that, generally speaking, we can depend upon, right? Well, the assurance of the supper is essentially the same. If you partake of the sacrament in faith, you're receiving more than bread and wine. You're receiving the substance, the essence of that which it represents. If you partake of the sacrament in faith, that is, looking to Christ, trusting not in the bread, but in the sacrifice of Christ. Not in the wine, but in the efficacy, in the effectiveness of what Jesus did then you will receive His strength, you will receive His nourishment, you will receive His life. So the next time you partake of the Lord's Supper, ask this, have I truly consumed the bread before me? And will that bread nourish me? You know the answer to that. Of course you did. You can still taste it. And you know that that food consumed is going to nourish you. By the same token, do I truly believe, do I truly trust in Christ? And if so, will He give me eternal life? You know the answer to that. And if you're trusting in Him, then you can confess with the psalmist, you have sought the Lord and He has answered. By your faith in partaking, you have called out and the Lord will hear and deliver you. Because you are united to Christ just as surely as that bread is now united to your body. Just as surely as that wine is now inseparably joined to the flesh which partook of it. Just as that food nourishes your body after you have done no more than eat of it. So too Christ gives life to your soul after you have done no more than trust in Him. He has done it all. You have only received. Jesus 
told his disciples in John 6. He said, "You, for he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. That's sacramental language. The language of assurance. We're not cannibals. God didn't set out actual flesh before us. He doesn't call us to drink actual blood. But instead, He calls us to eat and drink of Christ by faith. To be united to Him spiritually, even as that bread and wine are united to us physically. And what of you who are too young yet to partake? You who have not professed your faith publicly. You too are called to partake of Christ by faith. You know what that means? That means that as the bread comes past, you need to recognize that's how Jesus' body was broken for me. And you need to believe it. And when you do, though you're physically not partaking, spiritually you are just as joined to Christ. And when you see the wine come past and you smell it, you see it sloshing in the cup, you know it's real wine. You believe that's how truly Jesus shed His blood for me. And that blood will cleanse you. That blood will nourish you unto eternal life. As we look on Christ by faith, we partake. Now, of course, physically partaking of the sacrament is important. That's why we urge you to do it when you come of an age when you can examine yourself and come responsibly, maturely. When we do that, that that physical partaking, it strengthens our faith in a way that no one else, nothing else can do. But simply having faith in Christ, that is the ultimate goal. Trusting in the Lord Jesus, who alone can nourish us unto eternal life. I said at the start that our forefathers from hundreds of years ago would find it unthinkable. That we pass the element of the elements of the Lord's Supper through our pews. I find it unthinkable that we would not give the church a clear and close encounter with the reality of the blood and the, the uh, flesh of Christ. Because as we examine that bread, broken and torn, we see in a very concrete way what Jesus did for us. As we behold that wine, as we encounter it, We sacramentally encounter the reality of what Jesus did for us. And we receive the assurance that that sacrament was meant to impart. By instituting the Lord's Supper, Jesus spoke the language of assurance. Not intending to change the reality of the food before us, but intending instead to confirm the faith that abides within us. May He grant us eyes to see the meaning of the bread and the wine that is set before us. And may the Lord grant us, young and old, the ears to hear, such that we might receive this sacrament with understanding and assurance. For that's why it was given. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, You have given this sacrament as a great gift, that through it, we might be strengthened and nourished in our souls. That our faith might be grown and matured. 
that our trust in Christ might be made unshakable. Father, we pray that You would work this work in us. For we are weak. We cannot do it. And we pray that You would protect us from a wrong understanding that would would lead us to pervert the good purposes of the sacrament into a mere superstition. Father, we ask this that we might grow in Christ, that we might be built up and strengthened in Him. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.